to make you move forward and not become reactionary, you have to be able to take those risks because otherwise you will stand still. So not to do it is much more of a risk than doing it because you risk everything by not developing and growing. That's really the truth about it. It's like if you don't exercise, you're going to get flabby. (laughs) Sorry, that's the way it works. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can avoid burnout, improve your productivity, and activate your creative mind, all through the simple act of slowing down. Today, I return to the topic of risk-taking, one of my ongoing obsessions during this first season of the podcast. And so far, I've talked to Kim Chambers, a world-class marathon swimmer who literally swims with sharks, Matthias Correa, an entrepreneur and adventurer who took a challenging seven-month-long motorcycle trip from Brooklyn to Patagonia, and Tyler Cowen, an economist who believes that technology is making Americans more complacent and less open to taking big risks. And for this final installment in my conversations about risk, I tackled the topic with legendary graphic designer Paula Scher, who was the first female principal at the design firm Pentagram, where she has now worked for over 26 years. As witty as she is wise, Paula brings an entirely new perspective to the topic of risk in this episode. That of someone who has already moved through a very long arc in a very successful career. And as many of you listeners no doubt already know, once you're successful and established in your field, it's extremely easy to keep doing the same things. In fact, clients will often hire a particular designer because they want them to create new work that looks more or less exactly like their old work. Paula and I discuss how to avoid this trap of repeating yourself and specifically how you can continue to challenge yourself and evolve even after you've become an expert in your field. We also talk about the difference between being self-assured and being a smartass, why women should take jobs they feel unqualified for, and how being a designer is ultimately about teaching people how to see. Now let's dive in. You've said before that you have to be bad in order to get good. Can you talk about the importance of taking on jobs that you're unqualified for? Um, it's the idea of, uh, not really knowing the answers and, uh, sometimes actually having ignorance about how a specific discipline works or how a specific milieu works. I find that the more you repeat and the more of an expert you become, the less likely you're going to take the risks because you already know not what, what not to do so that, Part of the wonderful thing about work is these accidents that happen, and the accidents can only happen if you do something really out of the expectation, something sort of bad or dumb. I don't mean intentionally bad or corrupt. It's really the notion of allowing yourself to be in an area where you're sort of struggling to find the answers, and that's how you make discoveries. So... Kind of along those lines, you said it's, it's hard when you're a per- working professional to be able to fail, but, you know, there's kind of nothing you can do than, like, take on a project that sort of turns into, like, a huge disaster. But how do you allow yourself to take those risks and fail, you know, as a working professional, right? Because it's essentially happening in public. I actually uh, do free work for that reason. 
Um, I'll do pro bono projects because I have control of the situation because I volunteered this thing. It's not the goal to fail, but I can take more risks with the design and actually make some terrific discoveries because as long as I'm essentially putting out the appropriate information, um, largely I'm given the freedom to be able to make those failures. I mean, I think that my work for the public theater for over 23 years was... Uh, a lot of experimentation, a lot of success, and a lot of failure. I mean, I think there were things, there were up good periods and bad periods, things I learned from it. Um, and to a degree, it was my lab. Well, and so how do you, right, you're taking on those projects where you have more freedom, but how do you then, um, I guess, get out of your comfort zone, get out of that expert zone? That's a good question, because it's actually the older you get, the harder it is to to pull yourself away from it. And the wonderful thing about being young is if you don't have any experience, you've got nothing to do but learn. And when you learn, you make mistakes. And that's the very exciting. Uh, what I have to do is put myself into a position where I'm trying something that I don't really know whether or not it's going to work and feel very feel comfortable in doing that the way I would if I was young and arrogant. And that sometimes it fails and I stop it. And I feel that what's difficult for me to do now is when I see that it's going to be a big failure, I don't try to push it through because sometimes you can come out at the other end of that. And I think I know too fast that it's going to fail and I stop it before I really get to get to the essence of the heart of the failure. Um, And I think that's the responsible side of me, which is too bad because that's anti-creative. <laughs> Do you have any kind of tricks for trying to push through that for yourself? Um, it ha- you, have to, uh, you have to have time. You have to have time and space. You have to make it, uh, and ha- you have to design it. And you can't be delivering something. If you're delivering something and you're, you're really in tough shape about a schedule, then you don't really have the freedom to do that. That's the trap of the profession. It's interesting that um, uh, most businesses that create any form of product make a huge investment in R&D, but graphic designers really can't because they're always fulfilling some kind of of contract. And um, they really need to set aside the time to make a big sloppy failure. Well, and I know you, you know, in the past have sort of talked about your more, we'll say, artistic work, you know, the, the maps-related work kind of playing that role for you. But now that work is successful as well. So it's kind of like, where do you go? You know, where do you go to, where do you go to fail? <laughs> well, I gotta t- I, I've got to take the time to do that now because I, this past year, for example, uh, the year before I did a show that I liked very much and it was... It was a very design show, but I, the paintings were at a different scale, and I created sort of a context for the show, and I, and I, I liked the result of it as a show, uh, and then I would like to push the work further. But this past year, I took a lot of commissions because I'm building a house and I wanted to make the money. <laughs> so uh, that was a disaster for me, I think, as a painter, you know, that I really need to, to take some time in the next year after I move into this house and, and really go back to, to experimenting and, and seeing how I can push my narrow terrain, terrain a little bit, um, which would give me some satisfaction. I was reading, I was reading like a million, you know, past interviews of you to prepare for this. And um, one of those, you were talking about how you had a lot of success at a fairly young age as a designer around, you know, we'll say age 30. Um, 
and you said that you had visibility, but you didn't really yet have self-assurance. When did you, do you think it kind of started to feel more self-assured? Was there like kind of a, a turning point when you started to trust your taste and trust your skill set a little bit more? Um, still, I still struggle with that. You know, I mean, I don't think you ever feel totally self-assured. There, there are points where I'm comfortable in my own professionalism. I think that in my 30s, you know, I really hadn't accomplished work on a very broad scale. And I hadn't, I, I think I... I operated more as a smart ass, you know, that I, I was kind of using wit or outrageousness to sort of persuade people to do things. And then I, I really wasn't sympathetic or understanding of how clients see things or people who are not designers, really. And I remember that uh, my partner, Michael Beirut, when I joined Pentagram, and I was then in very early 40s, he, he was working on a, a packaging project that was sort of a, a, what I would call a kind of nuts and bolts packaging project for some kind of a consumer electronic goods. And really the goal of the job was to create a, a sort of a neat order, which I actually had not a huge amount of respect for at the time. And I've become much more respectful of that now, but that it was a serious job. And he was explaining a typographic system to a client that had no understanding of what a typographic system was. And uh, he, he had um, Times Roman, and I think Helvetica, something like that, to showing two fonts to organize information. And there he had a sign that said, this is Times Roman. It is a serif typeface. It is the one with the little feet. And I looked at it and I laughed. I thought it was really hilariously funny. And then there was the other one that was Helvetic and it doesn't have the little feet. And then there was this moment of getting it that it, I know that, of course, and that's sort of like pointing to a house to a grown up and saying, this is a house. You know, I thought, I, I thought of it in those terms. Then I realized, of course, why would anybody really know that? And I hadn't, in all maybe 20 years of presenting, work, I hadn't really understood that there's no reason for them for them to know or understand why I made decisions. And that meant that I had to go back and deconstruct everything I think and do to put it into human terms for someone else to get it. And that it's not, it, it is the most uncynical thing you can do as a designer because you're really teaching somebody how to see. And that's, that's really the goal. But it took me a really long time to understand that. And when I began to understand that, I began to feel better as a practitioner. Well, and so going a step beyond, say, teaching someone how to see, you've had a number of projects over the course of your career. I'm thinking about like, the MoMA rebrand or the project that you did with the city of Pittsburgh, where you know, you essentially, I think, kind of took their design brief and were, just sort of threw it out the window and were like, okay, we have to solve this problem in a completely different way. Um, how do you kind of, one, I guess, kind of have the nerve to do that, but two, then, you know, make the case for that? Well, in the case of MoMA, it wasn't really a rebrand. It was refreshed because I didn't change their logo. What I changed was uh, this organizational system, which, by the way, they've totally thrown out now and gone exactly in the opposite way after eight years. But I think at the time it was exactly what they needed in that... Um, they had a specific problem, and they had a, the problem was that people uh, saw that these terrific shows were on, 
but didn't know where to go. He, like, didn't know that they were at the Museum of Modern Art or didn't know, or didn't know to call it MoMA or just didn't have an understanding of it. And I, at that time when I worked on the project with uh, Glenn Lowry, the, the issue was really how does MoMA get credit for all the terrific things it does? And that when you looked at the materials they produced, they, and this is very, very common in um, not-for-profits and corporations, that materials that promote organizations are generally conceived and produced in individual departments. And the individual departments really it, don't talk to each other that much. And so that you'll find, if there are eight departments, you'll find almost eight identities. And the identities are subtly different in that you know, they may be using the same logo type, but they may be using a different typeface for the text type, or they lay out things. Some people drop things out. Some people surprint things. But the typography is a mishmash of stuff, and it doesn't look like one place. What I essentially gave them was a, a grid that was a one-page uh, manual, because there was a woman in-house who uh, was the art director who had worked for me named Julia Hoffman. And the, the one-page manual could be interpreted horizontally, vertically, upside down. It was a premise of putting MoMA at a specific scale against other type and in the corner. So that the first thing you read was MoMA, then you saw the show, then you saw a bunch of other things you could go and do there. So that you, you were consistently clear about how to recognize it, and it really worked. I mean, it became very recognizable. Now, I think there were curators who probably argue that it made the organization overreach the show. And that this is the classic uh, not-for-profit cultural institution battle. Like, what matters more? If it's a Broadway play, for example, in a theater, the theater is not important as the play. And the play is a hit. You find out what theater it is. If you're talking about a not-for-profit theater and they have many plays, but they may not get very much promotion, then the theater has to take precedence over the uh, over the situation. Um, I would argue that with a blockbuster show, people always know where it is. It's the middle shows that actually need the institution to help support it. But that's going to be a continuing argument forever. Well, and so the backstory right to this MoMA um, project is that, you know, you essentially suggested that they reorg the, the staff in order to be able to execute this sort of Plan, well, they had, right? They had, they, had a re, they had to rethink how they they made how things were approved. Yeah. Yeah. But so I guess the the question would be, you know, how do you like what's your mindset going going into that meeting where you're gonna say, Okay, Mama, like I think you kinda need to reorg in order to, you know, execute on this kind well, of design you don't, plan. You don't go in and demand that. <laughs> I mean you sort of you sort of talk about you look at how or the organization is structured and how they're making how how they're making their decisions, and that that within that structure and those decisions, you see why things turn out the way they do. So that you're not you're not emphasizing a reorganization. You're emphasizing a, to a degree a retraining of thought about the thing. Like to how do you get everybody on the same page? For example, I remember. Uh, 12 years ago when I did, uh, when I designed the, uh, redesigned the Holocaust Museum, uh, the United States Holocaust Museum's identity, uh, they were the worst perpetrator of having, I think they had like uh, 
16 different groups or something like that that pro were producing their own materials, and you couldn't find you couldn't find an identity for the organization at all. Almost, it was really amazing. And the way that one was set up was that as a, as a workshop where all those participants were in the room at the same time looking at it and seeing it for themselves so that that was a way of retraining their behavior. It isn't that you restructure or the, the, the groups go away. It's how they, how they continually and communally create the goal to change their behavior and that they have to understand their own failure in that. I think that it's hard to do if there's resistance from the group. Um, if there isn't resistance from the group or the group wants it as much as the president, then you've got an easy shot at it. It's not that, it's not that difficult, it's, but again, it's the same thing. It's teaching somebody how to see. It's time for a quick break, but stay tuned. After the jump, Paula and I talk about how nothing in design is ever timeless and how to hold the room as a female designer in a world of men. This episode is brought to you by WordPress. If you've visited the Hurry Slowly website, you can probably tell that I care deeply about the look and feel of my online presence, which is why I've used WordPress.com to build every website I've created for the past 10 years. I love the freedom and flexibility that the platform gives me, both to style the design of the site and to distribute great content. And the best part about WordPress is that you don't need to be a code or a design expert to use it. WordPress provides all of the tools that you need to get your site up and running, and their crack customer support team is available 24-7. But what I like most is that WordPress also provides built-in SEO and specialized plugins. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to do something on my site and thought, is there a WordPress plugin for this? And in my experience, there literally always is. That's the power of having a platform that supports nearly 30% of all the websites on the internet. Plans start at just $4 a month. So head on over to wordpress.com slash hurry slowly to create your website today. That's wordpress.com slash hurry slowly for 15% off a brand new website. This episode is also brought to you by SaneBox. Fun fact. The average office-bound human spends almost two and a half hours a day on email. That's 12 plus hours a week on email. Hours that you could no doubt spend on more meaningful work if you could just get them back. And that's where SaneBox comes in. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and makes keeping it that way forever super easy. On average, SaneBox users save two to four hours every single week. But SaneBox also helps you keep the important stuff top of mind. You can set Sane reminders to ping you if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date. And the Sane black hole makes it easy to vanquish pesky senders from your inbox so that you never, ever have to hear from them again. Best of all, you can use SaneBox with any email client or phone anywhere you check your email. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com slash hurry slowly today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash hurry slowly. 
Relatively recently, you did the rebrand of the New School, right. which was a project that got very kind of mixed reviews, right? right? Some people were crazy about yeah, it, and then right. some people were like, right. it's a train wreck. Right, right, right. Um, you know, and there was just, people were very vocal. There was a lot of feedback that you got. How do you deal with, you know, the backlash in those situations where you're kind of taking creative risks? Well, it's tricky. Um, the New School, in, in a funny way, was was for one, a really good learning experience and, and uh, a lesson to me in getting the process right. Because here's the reality of the thing, particularly in a social media world. Things like schools, sports teams, uh, things that demand individual spirit. Uh, things like logos have huge resonance. Like you, if you know what happened with UC uh, on the West Coast, there'll be an, there can be an uprising if you change something and you have offended this huge constituency. Um, when I was doing the new school, the process was really complicated in that, first of all, the school was looking for radical change, which, which was the assignment. It wasn't that I pushed them into radical change. I had, I, there's actually a presentation I do where I show it, where I show the initial hierarchy that I set up and they said, too boring. And, and that's when we began at expanding the letter forms, which I thought was gonna be crazy until I realized I could program it. And then I realized it was a breakthrough, but that was an accident. It was an accident because I was being pushed into the direction with my client, but the collaboration with the client is really what mattered. I had to get 40 approvals on that project, I had to go through the board of directors. I had to go through the trustees. I had a whoever was whoever was there, teachers, every single school. They all weighed into it, and it took a long time because of it. But when I got the attacks, they were there, you know, because they they were part of that process. And I realized the complete value of making sure everybody's included, because they had to own it too. But then a really peculiar thing happened because the uh, criticism stopped. And it really stopped when that class, that senior class graduated, because the next group completely embraced it as their own. So I realized I wasn't designing it for that year, I was designing it for the next year. <laughs> you know, it was for the future student, not the students there now, because you've changed what they knew. So they had already embraced that, so then you're forcing them to embrace something when they have another idea of what their past is. So it isn't, that can't work. But, but you do, I think now, if particularly, where people have mass loyalties, you really do have to make sure that everybody weighs in or you're gonna, you could be killed in social media. It's really rough on those organizations yeah. because they have to take all the heat for doing something that they used to do in private and never have to face mm -hmm. any form of criticism about. Well, and kind of getting more into this idea of risk-taking, I feel like there's this whole dialogue that's kind of happening around it these days that's, I don't know, very tied into entrepreneurship and it feels like this very binary idea of risk-taking, like you're a risk-taker, like you're not, you know, like you kind of make big leaps or bold moves or like you don't, but I feel like it's more, actually more of a slow burn thing. Like you kind of put yourself out there and you succeed or you fail, you know, you start to know a little more, you start to be a little bit braver and then repeat, right? Um, I'm curious if that's kind of your experience or if you think about it differently in terms of like your own ability to kind of take risks and, you know, kind of push outside of your comfort zone. Um, I don't think of myself as a huge risk taker. I, I think of myself as a calculated risk taker. And I also think I, when I talk about taking risk, it's more of a risk not to. In other words, that if you're trying to maintain a long running career, for want of a better word, in design, 
that you have to you have to develop. You can't say, oh, this is timeless and do the same thing over and over again. Nothing's timeless. You can't do that. You have to grow. Now, the thing is that cultures change, zeitgeist change, uh, technology changes, that you're living through this massive change and you cannot, you're never going to be 25 again. You're not going to be a neophyte into the, into the culture with no understanding of anything that came before you again where you have that incredible innocence that you have the knowledge of all this history and everything around you. And to make you move forward and not become reactionary, you have to be able to take those risks because otherwise you will stand still. So not to do it is much more of a risk than doing it because you risk everything by not developing and growing. And that's really the, that's really the truth about it. It's like if you, if you don't exercise, you're going to get flabby. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's the way it works. Well, and has there been a recent project that you worked on or something where you were kind of like, oh, should I do this? And then you kind of, you know, were like, I have to. Well, you know, there's some projects that I find really inspiring and I, I can take huge leaps of faith and really feel by virtue of what the project is, you know, capable of, of making some leap or, or pulling it to a higher level. And then I have some projects where either I don't find the subject matter that interesting or I have problematic clients. And then my goal is to be as professional as I possibly can and also get out of it as fast as I can. <laughs> yeah, one, one part of risk taking is cutting your losses, right? <laughs> well, it's also just, just um, it's demoralizing. I find it's demoralizing to, to dwell on things that aren't working. I mean, if I think everybody says, oh, you've done so much, you have so much... Blah, blah, blah. I have so much bad work. There's so many things I've done that are really mediocre. I mean, continually. And, and it's because I've done so many things. And the proportion of what I think is viable. Like I, you know, there's a big book published in my work. Oh, such a big book. Well, really, what are, what are in there? Maybe 300 projects. It's over 40 years. I do a lot of projects. What, what happened to the other, you know, 900? <laughs> they really sucked. And that, that the fact of the matter is you do. You do because, because the circumstance, you know, it's like a, playing baseball. You know, you can't hit every pitch. Sometimes they're just, you know, they're foul balls and there's nothing you can do about it. So you sort of wait them through and if you're lucky, you get to walk. But, but mostly... Mostly, you're, if you focus on that, it becomes so demoralizing that you can't move on to the next thing. And for me, what's important is the next thing. Even if the thing I'm working on is terrific, I can't bemoan it when it's over because that would kill me also. I can't be saying, oh, that was a great job I just did. Oh, this next thing doesn't look good. I have to assume the next thing's going to be the one. You know, and that, that kind of optimism is really important to, to being able to work. When you said earlier, you used the term calculated risk, which is really interesting. I was interviewing um, another woman recently who used the exact same term when I asked her if she thought of herself as a risk taker. Um, and I was, it was making me think about there's uh, kind of a lot of research around women and confidence and um, how we think about ourselves. And if you kind of let's say going back to the beginning when I was asking you about sort of pitching yourself for jobs that you feel unqualified for, or sort of research that shows that women in particular will only pitch themselves for those types of, will only pitch themselves generally if they feel like 100% 
qualified or even like 110% qualified. Whereas men are much more likely, you know, to just kind of really not care about it. Like, oh, I'm 60% qualified. Like, that's good enough. I'm curious, um, you know, because you use that term calculated risk, how you think about that? Or have you just seen kind of different gender dynamics or feel them? I don't think that they think they're more qualified. I just think they think they're more deserving, you know, which is different. I, I mean, I, their, their expectation is totally different. Of course I'm going to get that. And women don't have that expectation, so they think they have to be uber qualified. It's just the sense of expectation. It's not about a, a thing about qualifications. If you think that there must be a reason that men get it more than women or men make more than women, and then decide, well, it, it, it couldn't be fair that they just do, so there must be that I'm not qualified enough to do this. That's the tragedy, because that's not the truth. The truth is the expectation. Have you had moments of, you know, if you think about it as being deserving, where you've kind of wrestled with that a little bit internally and, you know, kind of been like, no, like, you know, these these people should bet on me. Or like, I guess almost. Well, like I, I always had, I always had a set of sense of outrage about it. And I think it started in my youth. You know, I mean, I had a, um, a father who I think was brilliant, but also a bit of a sexist. Like he didn't think I was smart enough to learn to play chess you know, and play with my brother, that sort of thing. And I, I grew up with that a bit and I started really questioning it. I, I shared a bedroom with my brother who's five years older than me. And I have, you know, millions of men partners. So I've, I've sort of lived in this, sort of been surrounded by it. And I, I see a difference in uh, a certain form of sense of entitlement, you know, and I've been in meetings with my partners. And if we go in unannounced and I'm with a male partner, the eyes of the client will immediately focus on the male because they assume he's the power figure. It's just a natural assumption. It always happens. It always does. And so I talk louder you know, take it back, take it back. Because I can sit there and feel sorry for myself or I can take it back. You kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to go into it more deeply. You were talking about, speaking of young designers, like when you look at what young designers are doing, sometimes you question it, you know, or maybe don't relate to it. And you start to have this feeling that your own work is, you know, timeless or somehow superior that you have to kind of like really step back and be like, no, and kind of question that. Like, how, do, how does that process work for you? And like, kind of why do you call yourself out? Well, I learned that a long time ago. Uh, I, you know, when, and it was really every time there was something new that came into fashion. If you really hate something or you think something is really irritating or, or, or the end of all design as we know it, pay attention, it's probably good. And that, that, that's actually always been the truth. Uh, because... Those things that matter are recognizable, and they're recognizable in ways that make you uncomfortable because you have to, you have to learn to see again. You know, like somebody is putting a new way of seeing in front of you or, or a revised way or something that is designed to, to provoke the discomfort, and you really have to pay attention. It's probably great. Yeah, there's... Um, I can't remember the exact quote, but you know, there's a Carl Jung quote about that. Like you can learn everything you need to know about yourself through examining what irritates you about yeah. others. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's really, really, uh, because you find out what you're scared of and, and, and it's something you don't know how to do usually. 
you were reading an old interview. You're talking about moving to New York with your portfolio and fifty dollars. You know, many years ago. Um, I feel like when you're young, like you don't even think about like quote unquote risks, right? But as you get older, you have nothing to lose. Right? You don't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> as you get older, this kind of fear and risk becomes a bit more palpable because you have something to lose, as you say. But you also have more experience and knowledge of what you're capable of. Like, I'm curious, what did risk taking feel? to you like at that time, like when you're in tw- your 20s, and like what does it feel like now? Well, I didn't even know I was taking risks because, as I said, I had nothing to lose. I was just responding to opportunities and possibilities. And, and you know, I had about, I came, I moved to New York. I didn't have any money. I, I got a job working in an advertising agency that lasted about a minute. Then I got a job at Random House designing the inside of children's books. Then the the man I worked with was going to another job, and he got me a job with a friend of his inside the CBS Records promotion department. I worked there for two and a half, I think it was two and a half years, and I designed ads, and the art director at Atlantic saw the ads, and I went to Atlantic, and they did the covers and the ads in the same place. Then I went to, uh, I was hired by the head art director of CBS to come back to be the art director of record, you know, East Coast covers, where I was doing promotion before. All of that was accident. You know, like I was just doing these things. I didn't think about it as taking risks. I made things. I tried to make things that I thought were good. I was not afraid to have arguments with people if I was, if they wanted to change things. I was always trying to persuade them. I did it with a huge sense of humor, which was a natural gift. And I used it. And that's, that's what I did. But I didn't think, it wasn't designed. I didn't think about it that way. I never would have defined it. It was just, this is the way I, I thought life was. And looking back at it, I don't actually see jobs like the jobs I had that are readily available to young designers, I see a field that's much more sophisticated, much more crowded, uh, much more of an apprentice period. Uh, very, very different in structure. It was a very uncrowded field. People still, people were still calling it commercial art. Yeah. So that that you know, so much of life is happenstance, and then there's a certain part of life where you start to figure out how to use the things you learned along the way. Um, but but I think I was just very lucky. Well, and what's the biggest risk now, not taking enough risks? I think so. I think that's probably, the, the, uh, I, for me, what I find the most difficult is separating what I know right away from what I may not be seeing because I know too much. That's, that's really where I see the biggest pitfall. Well, and what do you think about when you think about that now? Like what types of projects that you want to take on? Like what are the criteria? Well, that's a really good question. I'm not even sure what the criteria is. I mean, I think there are, there are projects that seem glamorous because they're in certain kinds of industries. But I find that when I get them, they're not any more glamorous than projects in other kinds of industries. I think it's really the notion of being able to make an impact. I love a certain kind of environmental work where I change the expe- expectation of a place. Um, I love identity work where people are really interacting with it. Those, those are the things that... I struggle with because sometimes something looks very glossy on the outside and it's actually not that great. And there are other things that are terrific and they don't seem as glamorous. And, mm-hmm. and you make those decisions. I like being involved with cities. I like parks, things that are public places. And I want to find new ways to do them. Yeah, I saw someone with a Highline t-shirt yesterday. I thought <laughs> of you walking by my apartment building. What's the, like, for you in work now, like you have so much experience, what's the biggest challenge that you're dealing with? To try to find new ways of doing things. 
that is the biggest challenge, to try to find new ways of doing things, to not repeat myself, to use my knowledge, not rely on my knowledge, to uh, interact well with my team and, and get the best out of them and to have a good time. I like Paula's idea of risk-taking as a muscle, one that grows flabby and weak if you don't exercise it regularly. And the fact of the matter is that as you age into your career, it becomes easier and easier to not use that risk-taking muscle. In part because you're established and people are less likely to push you or to question your judgment, but also because you have so much knowledge that it can almost become a crutch. Your existing experience gets in the way of your ability to see new possibilities. Or it steers you away from the big sloppy failures that might have pushed you into new territory. So I guess the takeaway here is something like, if you want to stay young and keep your work fresh, don't be afraid to fall on your face. And I can actually confirm from personal experience that this strategy works. Because I literally fell on my face, split open my chin, and rearranged most of my teeth shortly after my 40th birthday last year. And I have to say, it really did change my whole outlook. It was one of those a blessing in disguise type of events. But that's a story for another day. Next week on the show, I'll be speaking with Slovenian philosopher Renata Seletzel, the author of an incredible book called The Tyranny of Choice that completely changed the way that I think about decision-making. We'll be talking about how living in a world of infinite choice feeds our anxiety and why the very American notion of becoming a self-made man or woman is actually toxic. But don't worry, it's not all doom and gloom. We also discuss how letting go of the idea of making an ideal choice can be completely liberating. If you'd like to be alerted when new episodes come out and you're not already signed up for my fabulous newsletter, stop dilly-dallying. Go to the podcast website at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter to sign up. The email is a weekly affair that's packed with great links that are all about how to find more creativity and meaning in your daily work. This show is produced by Matt Susich, and our relaxing theme music was created by Devin Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you left us a review on our iTunes page. Every rating really does help us build our audience, which helps us build momentum, which helps us keep making the show. Thanks again for listening, and remember to flex those risk muscles. <laughs> <laughs>